Today's reading comes from 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thanks, Carrie. Morning, Arcadia. How you doing? Good to see you. If you are new, my name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here at uh, Redemption Arcadia. We're glad that you are here. Um, I wasn't planning on this, but everybody look up here for a second, okay? I want you to hear this. Unlike James, I have heard the Busby story, and I was absolutely floored by what God was doing and God is doing. Um, and when it was done, the first thing I said is, would you guys be willing to do this on a backstories? And they said, yes. And, and so I'm telling you, it, it, this is not a backstory. It's really a God story. So I would encourage you uh, to be here uh, on that March backstories. Anyway, um, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I'm also looking forward with a little bit of trepidation, honestly, to this new series that we're starting today, seven weeks, sorry, seven weeks. Uh, called Countercultural Convictions. Um, how many of you uh, received in the email the, the new membership documents and packets? Okay. I know we sent that out to anybody that we would have on our email list. Um, we've spent the last year rewriting uh, Redemption at Large, rewriting our membership papers. Uh, we've uh, called it down, believe it or not, from 54 pages to 38 pages, so it's more readable now. And um, it's much clearer. Uh, there were very few changes necessarily. We just made it uh, uh, clearer. Um, but one of the things that we, as we were doing that, as the lead team, and, and really, uh, remember the guy that preached here last week, Seth? Seth was actually in charge of the project. He was leading it. Many people had a lot to do with it, but he's the one that invested most of the time in it. Um, but as we were doing it, we also began to realize that there are a lot of people who attend Redemption Church and are frankly part of the Christian church at large that have really very little understanding of what a statement of faith might be, what it might mean, and, and what some of the issues are that are especially prevalent in our culture uh, that we may need to address and talk about and remind people of. And so uh, redoing the membership packet sort of was the precursor to us thinking we needed to do this series um, because we're dealing with some issues that are very difficult. And this is why I say I approach this, this series with some, I look forward to it, but there's some trepidation because I also know uh, for a fact, based on experience, that there are many people who attend redemption who might actually be surprised to find out what we really believe even though it's very simple to find out what we really believe. We really believe that this book, the Bible, is the word of God. 
It does not contain the word of God, and we have to go and search the Bible for God's word and discern which ones are God's word and which ones aren't. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is the word of God. And so that is our authority. And as such, what the Bible says about our life, that's what we believe because it is God's word. And so we understand that that the world outside of Christianity, the world outside of the church, wouldn't necessarily believe the things that we believe. We get that. We understand that. What we're always a little bit alarmed about is the number of people who claim to know Christ and follow him and love his word when they really find out what his word says, not much interested anymore. And so we're not doing this, this series necessarily to push back, but rather to lovingly say, this is what it means to follow Christ. And we're covering seven different topics. And these seven topics, you need to understand, it's not the entirety, uh, but there are seven that are pretty important. So here are the the topics that we're going to cover. Today, we're going to talk about love and what that really means. We're going to talk about Jesus next week. Then we get into the authority of the Bible. That'll be March 1st. Um, uh, I'm sorry, that'll be um, uh, March 8th. And then March 15th will be when Justin Anderson comes in. He's our founding pastor. He's going to come in and he's going to tackle the gender issue for us. And then on March 22nd, we're going to talk about uh, the biblical understanding of sex. We're going to talk about salvation and atonement, uh, the second of the last week. And then on Palm Sunday, we're going to talk about the vulnerable. Those are going to be our seven topics. And I know this is going to stir some things up. And we're prepared for that, and we'd love to have conversations with you about those things, but that's what we're going to be doing for the next um, seven weeks. So as some people would say, fasten your seatbelt for this. So let's just dive right into love. Love. I'm going to quote from the very beginning of the new uh, redemption membership packet. This is what's written. Love is at the center of the universe and at the center of Redemption Church. So the topic of love, the issue of love, where would you begin? In one respect, we could have a conversation about what love is, trying to define it, for the next several hours and maybe get nowhere. And and on the other side of the coin, we could actually dispose of the definition, dispose of the topic in about 10 seconds by simply pointing to the cross with Jesus on it and saying, that is a picture of true, genuine love right there. So we understand the comprehensive and complex nature of uh, this topic. Uh, because I'm, I fancy myself as a scholar and as an academician, I actually look some stuff up on the internet because as we know, the internet is very trustworthy. So, <laughs> um, so I went to Mer- the Merriam-Webster Dictionary uh, website. I used to have a book that was a Merriam-Webster dictionary, but now you just have a phone, so that works. Merriam-Webster has 13 different definitions for love and more sub-definitions for love, including the score of zero in a tennis match. <laughs> now that's good to know. Love is zero. That's really, really good to know. But also, Merriam-Webster says that love is feelings of affection for another. It's sex. It's benevolence, it's attachment, 
its attraction and its pleasure. I love Zinberger. I can get on board with that. Uh, the Greek language over centuries, the Greek language has, has had as many as five and, and maybe even eight, up to eight different words that we would translate as love. And the, the one word that Christians seem to be most familiar with, the one that we're going to talk about later in this message, is agape. You've probably heard that word before. But what's interesting about the word agape is that prior to Jesus and Christianity, agape was considered the most obscure and little used of all the Greek words for love. It was, it was Jesus and the New Testament and the church that made this word famous because it's unique. It's unique, and I'll talk more about that later. At any rate, I also found these definitions, and I found them, like I said, on the internet, so I know they're true and accurate. Let me just run through them. It's not all of them, but here you go. Uh, Love is either a horrible disease or a blessing. Love is nature's way of letting you know that even when you're happy, you can still feel extreme pain. Love is a form of dementia. Spelled backwards, love is evil. Love is a game of attrition. Love cannot be defined, but it can be demonstrated. Love is a romantic misunderstanding between two fools. Love is when you cannot hold back your ear-to-ear smile when you see your significant other. Love is a gamble. Love is a battlefield. I think that was Pat Benatar's uh, (laughs) contribution. I love this one. Love is a sixth sense that destroys the other five senses and makes a person believe nonsense. (laughs) Now, Now listen to these last two. Love is someone or something you'd give your life for. And love is giving your last morsel of food to someone else even though you are extremely hungry. Uh, That definition there immediately brought to mind the movie Cinderella Man. I don't know if anybody saw that movie. Really, uh, I thought, a a wonderful movie. Um, There was a scene early in the movie when James Braddock, the fighter, played by Russell Crowe, they were so poor that they they had virtually no food, and they were getting ready to eat dinner with their kids. And their kids were starving to death, and they each had a little piece of meat, and that was going to be their dinner, like a little piece of salami. And he could see how hungry his kids were. And so he said, you know, last night I had a dream that I had this big meal and I ate more than I could ever possibly eat and I'm still full from that dream. And so he divided up his, his morsel for his kids as well. It's, a, again, a picture of love. But other than those last two definitions of love, and trust me, it, came, it took me a long time to come across those last two definitions of love. On the internet, I did not see many love definitions that resembled anything like sacrifice or investment or availability. I think the problem with trying to define or understand love is the fact that you and I only know of love and experience love within the context of a world and relationships that are broken with sin. And so our understanding of love is broken because we've only experienced it in a broken way. It's rare when we experience it in its, most, in its purest form. Um, 
And as a result, love has become a very selfish rather than, than a selfish, selfless thing uh, that we talk about. The problem is sin. Sin is, among many other things, it's the obstruction of love. And that also, believe it or not, makes it, I think, easy to point to what true, genuine love is. True, genuine love is the cross. The definition of love is that simple when we think about it, but let's go a little bit deeper. Consider what we learn from the creation narrative that we find in Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter in the Bible. God is one, we find out almost right away. God is one, but he exists in Trinity. He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're not polytheists, we're monotheists, but we understand God exists in this Trinity with three different personhood expressions. And that means that God has existed for eternity in this perfectly yielded, loving community. God has existed as an eternal communion of perfect love, with no beginning and no end. We find this reiterated in John chapter 17, verse 24, where Jesus is, is about to be betrayed and sent to the cross, and he's praying not only for his disciples, but also for us. And he's praying to his father and he says this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. God has existed in this perfect, beautiful, harmonious relationship of love and submission and yieldedness for eternity. So here's a question that may seem a little random at this point, but I'm getting to a point. When are you and I most happy? It's when we are in wonderful, life-giving relationships. Have you ever stopped to think about describing all of your relationships in one of two categories? Life-giving and life-sucking. Now, how much of a blessing is it to find life-giving relationships? It's a huge blessing because relationships are hard. But that's when we're most happy. And that's not just the Bible talking or me talking. That's Stanford research talking. That's Harvard research talking. You go to any major research university, their schools of psychology, you go there and you start reading their research, they will tell you the same thing, that human beings exist primarily for relationship and community. That's why we exist. They're pointing to God and not even realizing that they're doing that with their research. The main primary function of a human being is relationship and community with God and with others. And in a practical sense, that's why sin stinks. It harms and destroys relationship and community. But relationships guided by a covenant and a commitment of grace and trust and forgiveness and are truly and completely yielded to one another, submitted to one another, those are the relationships that make us truly happy. And God's relationship and community is perfect because it's one of perfect eternal love. Therefore, it is safe to say that God is happy. He's wholly happy, H-O-L-Y, happy, and he's wholly happy. 
W-H-O-L-L-Y, happy. So for God, for all eternity, before he even created us, he was perfectly, flawlessly happy and loving. So why did he create us? Why would he create us? That is an excellent question, and I'm so glad you asked. There's only one plausible answer to that question. Because God wanted to share his happiness and his love with us. That's why. But we jacked it up. Read Genesis chapter 3. I'm I'm telling you, let me give you my little spiel for Genesis 1, 2, and 3. If you don't read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you're going to struggle with understanding what the rest of Scripture is all about. You've got to have that as your foundation. You should be reading that. Okay? And so God gives us the gospel, which, by the way, he points to in Genesis chapter 3 right after the fall. A lot of people miss that. But he's already pointing to the Messiah who's coming in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So God gives us the gospel. He gives us Jesus. God is love. And love is the cross, and love is on the cross. So there's many passages that we could probably use, but we chose for today Uh, 1 John chapter 4, let me read that again, what Carrie read. John writes this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I think this passage is about love, in case you were wondering. So look at verse 7. This is where I'll spend most of the time, camp here a little bit. John calls us to love one another, for love is from God. We are to love one another because love is from God, not from us. Now, let's, let's just consider the implications of this tiny little clause, love is from God. If love is, genuine, true love is, in fact, from God, that means that it's going to have three characteristics, at least, these three. Number one, love is pure. God's love is unsullied by sin. It's unsullied by selfishness. Secondly, love is sacrificial, which is demonstrated time and time again, not only in the Old Testament, but also with the crowning achievement of sacrificial love demonstrated by Jesus on the cross. And third, love is yielded, meaning that love submits, it serves, it trusts, it protects, it provides, it advocates, and it stands with. But yieldedness also, now get this, yieldedness also means it is impossible to understand love without proximity. In order to be yielded towards someone, you have to be in proximity with that person as well. So proximity is important. This is why the body of Christ is so important. Actually meeting together on Sunday or whenever we do it is so important because it has to be done in proximity. For that is where the true nature of our love is exposed, when we are in proximity with each other, and that love is exposed, that true nature of our love is exposed in that proximity for good or for evil, 
for good or for evil. Two things I know are true. It is easy to love from a distance. Because from a distance, there's no investment, there's no sacrifice. There's no expectation. I also know this. It's easy to hate from a distance as well. It's easy to be judgmental from a distance as well. But close up, in proximity, what we find is when we actually know someone and are in proximity with them, it's harder to truly hate them. But it's also a greater challenge to truly love them, right? That's the challenge of this here. Because loving in proximity requires work because of sin. But here's the other implication of this little clause, and I think this is massive. This is huge. The word used here is agape. Again, several words that could have been used, but John uses the word agape. And this word is used over and over and over and over in this passage and in this entire book of 1 John. This is the same word that's used in Ephesians 5.25 where Paul writes, Husbands, love agape your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's also the same word that's used in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew where Jesus says that we are to love agape our enemies. So some of the other words for love, there's eros love, which is sexual love. There's philia love, which is brotherly and affinity love. There's storge love, which is secure, traditional comfort, comfortable and familiar love. And there's others, but each of these other loves is rooted in the worthiness of the one being loved. Something about that person draws you to love them. There's something about that person that you can't help yourself but to love them. Agape is unique, however, because it's unconditional and selfless and is therefore not rooted in the worthiness of the one being loved, but is rather rooted in the character of the one doing the loving. You're loving not because they're lovable, not because they're deserving, but because your character cannot but love. That's what agape love is. And that is how God loves us. While we were yet sinners, Christ loved us and died for us. There was nothing worthy about us. I hate to batter your little self-esteem, but there was nothing worthy about us. But he did it anyway. He did it anyway for us. While we were enemies of God, God loved us and sent his son sacrificially for us to save us. There was nothing in our nature that would draw love out of God. But God's character cannot but love us. That's agape. That's unique. And it's different than any other love. And that is the love that is imputed to us by God through knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's how we access that love. This love is from God. We humans in our sin are incapable of producing agape love. So in order to love each other like this, it has to come from God, which means that you have to be in Christ. So right away, some of you, can non-Christians love? Do non-Christians love? Sure they can, and yes, they do. But not like this. Not with this power and this motivation. There's always something else going on if this isn't generated by the filling of the Holy Spirit and the resurrected Christ. 
Again, consider some of the other agape passages. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is not a trick question. Are wives always lovable and worthy of their husband's love? Wow, I heard a female pitch no right away. That's some self-awareness, my brothers and sisters. <laughs> so, no, of course not. But in the gospel, Paul specifically uses this word for love because in a Christ-centered, gospel-centered marriage, husbands are to love their wives even when they're unlovable, as Christ loved the church. Not a trick question. Is the church always lovable? Certainly not. Christ loves us anyway. Think about it. Any schmo can love his wife when she's lovable. What's the point in saying love your wife when she's lovable? I can do that. Anybody can do that. That's the point. This biblical God love is different. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says love your enemies, it's agape. I, I read that and I feel like it's as though Jesus admits to us that he knows that there's nothing in our enemies that would cause or encourage us to love them. They're not worthy of our love, but he says love them anyway. You're to love them anyway. You, and you don't have the power to do this. It's only through me, only through the whole filling of the Holy Spirit, only through knowing the resurrected Christ. Love them anyway because you have been the recipient of this kind of love. You now know what this love is, and you have this love. It came from me to you, God says. Now you love with this love. That's the beauty of this love for us. But this is also why this love, agape, was so obscure and unpopular before Jesus came, because no one would or wanted to love this way. But then, Jesus on the cross. And things changed, and the world was changed, and people are transformed And we are called to this radical love. John presents love here. This is very important. John presents love as a consequence of not a precondition for being born of God, of being saved. Robert Yarbrough, who is a New Testament scholar, writes this. Unbelievers can love others to some degree, but not in the way that that God's indwelling presence enables Christians to love. And that is John's point in the rest of verse 7. He specifically says that anyone who does not love in this way, it is evidence that they have, uh, anyone who, I'm sorry, anyone who does love in this way, it is evidence that they've been born of God, that they know God. It, It is impossible for us to miss the progression and implications of the argument that John is making here. Look at verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, a few words about that. God is love is one of the most misquoted and misunderstood Bible sayings in history, and especially now, especially today. I am constantly amazed at how many people, here you go, inside the church who ought to know better. I'm not talking about outside the church. I'm talking about inside the church who ought to know better. How many people use this tiny little clause in order to say that no matter what they do, God will never judge them. Because God is love, and a God of love would never judge me. A God of love lets me do whatever I want. And and they believe that's a perfectly rational and sane thing to say, and it is, void of any other context in the Bible. Didn't we just go through Malachi? That doesn't really work in Malachi, in case you're wondering. See, we need to understand this verse. First of all, 
John is not saying that God is only love. God is also wrath and judgment and justice and mercy and many other things. Second of all, genuine love despises, genuine love hates anything that is harmful or destructive, like sin. And third, John is not saying that love is God. I've heard that before. God is love. Well, that means that love is God. He's not saying that. One of the most destructive flaws that we human beings have is is how we try to put God into some sort of box so that we can manage him. Love isn't God. Love comes from God. But saying that love is God makes it easier for us to put God in a box ostensibly to control him. What John is saying with this God is love statement is that this kind of genuine, pure, unconditional, selfless love only can come from God. That's what he's saying. And he makes that clear with what he writes next in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And then he repeats that principle again, but in a different way, and takes it even deeper in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiations, propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is a fancy word for payment, obligation, or atonement that could not be or ever be rendered by the offending party. In other words, the only way we could ever atone for our sin is through this substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. That's the propitiation. This is the greatest love. This is the greatest manifestation of love ever, period. It's never been matched, though you and I are called to follow it and live it in spite of our sin. And really, we're called to live it because of our sin. That's why God calls us to this love, because of sin. This is not an easy thing to do. I hear this all the time about books and movies. This is the greatest love story ever. Um, So I, I actually Googled the greatest love story ever just to see what would come up. You know, the first thing that came up was uh, something about Nick Offerman and Megan Mullally. Really? I mean, I know who Nick Offerman is. Apparently none of you do. <laughs> I have no idea who Megan is. The other, one of the other things that came up was the 1960... I could remember this. Not many of you would. But the 1968 movie Love Story with Ryan O'Neill and Ollie McGraw. Really? The song was okay, but... I don't know. He was a hockey player, though, so that was cool. Uh, how about... Brad Pitt and whoever this year's babe is, and that's the greatest love story ever, right? Okay, how about this one? Uh, Genesis 37 through 50, Joseph and his brothers. Now we're getting close, right? That, that's kind of a foreshadowing of Christ on the cross, only Jesus took it way deeper. The truth is, the greatest love story ever is Jesus on the cross. That's the greatest love story ever. John finishes in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. God's redemption for us by Jesus makes us his children. By believing in Jesus, we're now born again. We're born of the Spirit of God, and we're his kids, and we're adopted into his kingdom. And as such, we should take on the nature of our Father, and that nature is agape. So grasp this. Love is not merely revealed in ink on a page, but in the person of Jesus. This ink on these pages 
points us to who Jesus is. We don't stop at God's word. We go to Jesus. I want to close with this. Um, Tom Schrader passed away 13 months ago now. And, and I admit, I've talked a lot about Tom since his passing. I, I, I quote him all the time. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about him. I just miss him. I, 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 there's just like this incredible void that I've never felt before. And, and yeah, I, even with my own parents, nothing wrong with my parents, but th- there was something just different about Tom, and, 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 and it wasn't until a couple of weeks ago as I'm finalizing this message that I actually began to wrestle with the question, why? Why has this been so deeply and profoundly influenced, this loss, been this way in my life? Why do I miss him so much? So I thought about him. Those of you that know Tom, Tom was funny, amen? He was also wise, Uh, Tom's greatest gift, I believe, was being able to take something that's complex and put it into simple terms so that anybody could understand it. He was wonderful at that. He was winsome. Tom was available. Tom kept no record of wrongs by other people. And Tom always had a way of looking at things in a way different way than anybody else could look at. He just had a way of turning something just a little bit and then hitting it, and you're like, wow. He was amazing. And, and those are all great reasons why someone might miss him, but it wasn't those things, I realized. Uh, I finally realized this past couple of weeks why I miss him so much and why I still mourn his loss. Other than Jackie, my wife, There has been no one in my life who has loved me so relentlessly, unconditionally, in a truly agape way as Tom did. That's just who he was. It wasn't just me. He was the embodiment of this love. It was was just perfect. Uh, A couple nights ago, we were out with uh, Jackie's boss and his wife to dinner. And, And her boss out of nowhere, just started talking about Tom Schrader. And he was a casual acquaintance of Tom's. He never really uh, knew him that well, just a casual acquaintance. And he said, man, you know, there was something about that guy. When he would see me, he would light up. And he would stop, and he would ask me questions about me. He was genuinely interested in me. And I always felt loved by Tom. So it's not just me. Uh, during the, Tom's last couple of years of his life, some of you have read the book Tuesdays with Maury, right? I had Wednesdays with Tom. After preaching collective, I'd go over to his house and I'd spend up to two hours with him every Wednesday. And, and, and it was the same thing. I would walk into his house and, and it wasn't happiness. It was like joy. He was overjoyed to see me. No matter how much of a schmuck I'd been, no matter how stupid I'd been, no matter what my sin was, he just, he just, metaphorically, he just threw open his arms. And it was that love that also made him, I believe, a master forgiver. Tom had been kicked around by many, many people, and he never held a grudge, never held the wrongs of 
of people against them. Never held on to them. I pray two things for all of us. First of all, I pray that all of us would have the opportunity to experience that kind of love from someone else in this lifetime. What a privilege it was for me. It was an unspeakable privilege. And second of all, I pray that each of us would also be the embodiment of that love for others. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your love. We are grateful for your love. We are awestruck by your love. We are mystified by your love. We are stunned by your love. We pray that we would be the embodiment of that love to others. Whether they know you or not, whether they deserve it or not, that's the point. We pray we would be the embodiment of that love. Take that love from us into this world, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.